Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Subversive Song of the Mother of God, Mary's Magnificat. It's based upon the readings for Sunday, December 14, 2008, the third Sunday in Advent. If you ever felt left behind financially, there might be a reason. Since 1994, the nonpartisan United for a Fair Economy has tracked the differential between the pay of CEOs and average workers. Its annual Labor Day report noted that in 2008, average CEO pay was 344 times the pay of an average U.S. worker. If the federal minimum wage had risen as fast as CEO pay since 1990, the lowest paid workers in the U.S. would be earning about $23 an hour today, not $6.55 an hour. People disagree about how to redress the disparities between the rich and the poor, but whether we engage these matters is, for the Christian, crystal clear. In the Advent scriptures for this week, God looks and feels biased. We read in Isaiah 61, verse 8, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. The more than one million Americans who lost their jobs in 2008, the 46 million people without health care insurance, or the 30 million people living with HIV, all these are distinctly Christmas issues. God takes sides, and not just about wealth. These Advent scripture readings are so uncompromising that it's tempting to spiritualize them in order to soften their impact. Instead, we should take them at face value as a declaration that the advent of God's kingdom at Christmas, through a baby born in a barn, subverts our ordinary ways of doing political and socioeconomic business. <clears throat> In Luke's Gospel, the pregnant teenager Mary, the mother of Jesus, moves from the deeply personal to the explicitly political in her famous Magnificat, so named for the first word in the Latin text, I magnify. God, Mary exclaims, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. This peasant girl, who a few months later would bear the Son of God, then praises God the Mighty One because he has, quote, brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, 48-53 When I was in grad school, one of my professors recalled how his friends were amazed that he had quit his radically leftist politics. I told them, my professor said, that the most radically political thing I could do was to pray. Prayer as politics? For the longest time, I had no clue what he meant. But then I began to pay attention to a simple but profound reading of biblical texts like Mary's Magnificat. 
No wonder that in the 1980s the government of Guatemala prohibited the public reading of the subversive Magnificat. For if Jesus is Lord, and that's the Christmas message, then all the Caesars, Herods, Pharaohs, Pilots, and Mammons of the world are not Lords. They are posers, and the only future for them is that they be deposed. A few pages after the Magnificat, Luke records the first public words spoken by Jesus. He expands the breadth of God's biases far beyond wealth and political power. After his temptation in the desert, we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. One Sabbath, he entered a synagogue in Nazareth where he had grown up. And when he was invited to speak, he unrolled a scroll and read from the poetry of Isaiah for this week. Isaiah 61, 1-3 The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. When Jesus finished, writes Luke, he rolled up the scroll handed it to the attendant, and sat down. We read, With the eyes of everyone in the synagogue fastened on him, Jesus then dropped a bombshell. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, his entire birth, life, death, and resurrection fulfilled these ancient words of Isaiah. <clears throat> Many saints have put these words into action. Saint Basil the Great, who lived from 330 to 379, served as bishop of Caesarea in central Turkey. In the year 372, the emperor Valens sent his proxy Modestus to Caesarea, where he summoned the frail but fiery Basil. Basil dumbfounded Valens with his boldness in a famous incident recorded in his biography. When Modestus threatened Basil with confiscation, exile, torture, and death, Basil stood firm. Modestus remarked that no one had ever spoken to him so rashly, to which Basil replied, Perhaps you have never met a bishop before. One of ten children born into a wealthy family, Basil experienced a crisis of faith provoked by his sister Macarena, who challenged him about his worldly ambition, saying he was, quote, puffed up beyond measure with the pride of oratory, end quote. Basil relates how he then read the gospel and saw there that a great means of reaching perfection was the selling of one's goods, the sharing of them with the poor, the giving up of all care for this life, and the refusal to allow the soul to be turned by any sympathy toward things of the earth. St. Basil distinguished himself as a pastor, theologian, writer, 
and administrator. But many people remember him for his outspoken advocacy of the oppressed, the brokenhearted, and those burdened with what Isaiah 61 verse 3 calls a spirit of despair. He excommunicated people who owned houses of prostitution and objected to ursery and unjust taxes. During a famine in the years 367 and 368, Basil sold his family inheritance to feed the starving. He built hospitals to care for the sick, houses for strangers, and places for the poor. These institutions became so effective that the pagan emperor, and by the way Basil's former classmate, Julian the Apostate, modeled his own welfare efforts on these Christian ones. Basil also did menial work in the kitchens and objected to any distinctions between Jew and Christian, rich and poor. In his sermons entitled Against the Rich, he blasted people who hoarded wealth while the poor starved, who adorned their horses with luxurious finery while their neighbors wore tattered rags, and who let corn rot in the granaries and be eaten by rats rather than use it to help the poor. What kind of punishment, asked Basil, do you think is deserved by a man who passes the hungry without giving them a sign? Mary and Basil, following Jesus the Lord, lived and spoke about the biases of God's heart. They raised their voices in prophetic protests. Beyond that, they extended compassionate care to the weak and the marginal. And in doing so, they signaled the advent of God's kingdom in a reversal of the ordinary ways of the world. For books this week, I review Dexter Filkins. The title is called The Forever War, New York, Knopf, 2008. With the presidential election and the meltdown of Wall Street having pushed the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq off the front page, the De Dexter Filkins book is a disturbing reminder that America still has 161,000 troops occupying those two countries with calls for more. We've already spent $872 billion on the two wars, have lost more than 4,100 troops, and continue to spend over $12 billion a month to sustain those two efforts. No one can predict the outcome. According to the Pentagon, the security, political, and economic trends in Iraq continue to be positive, but they remain fragile, reversible, and uneven. In Afghanistan, things seem to be getting worse. Dexter Filkins scribbled 561 notebooks full of anecdotes, interviews, conversations, and first-hand experiences during nine years in the Middle East and South Asia. He first went to Afghanistan in 1998 as a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. He reported on the war there for more than two years, until he was arrested and expelled by the Taliban in 2000. He returned in 2002 for much of that year. Part one of his new book covers that time and place, 
the rise of dozens of competing warlords after the humiliation of the Soviet Union, the Taliban that restored theocratic order, the Northern Alliance that battled the Taliban, and then the American bombs that rained down after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. In March 2003, Filkins went to Iraq at the beginning of the American invasion, reporting for the New York Times from their Baghdad bureau. Part two of the Forever War collects his eyewitness accounts. By now, much of his book is old history. The looting at right after the invasion, the anarchy, the advent of IEDs used by over a hundred different insurgent groups, the gross incompetence of the Coalition Provisional Authority, the writing of the Constitution, Iraq's first elections, and the disinformation by the American military. Consider, for example, Jessica Lynch and Pat Tillman. When Filkins left Iraq after three and a half years, he believed that, quote, the nation's social fabric seemed too shredded to ever come together again. The very worst had lost its power to shock, end quote. Things got worse after he left in August 2006, which is where the forever war ends. This book requires a significant footnote. In the fall of 2008, Filkins returned to Iraq. He was shocked by the progress. <coughs> in his article for the New York Times called Back in Iraq, Jarred by the Calm, September 20, 2008, Filkins writes that, quote, to return now is to be jarred in the oddest way possible, by the normal, by the pleasant, even by the hope. The questions are jarring, too. Is it really different now? Is this something like peace or victory? And, if so, victory for whom? The Americans or the Iraqis? End quote. In a personal email, Filkin says that he's not ready to use words like success or victory. He wrote to me, quote, There has been too much blood for that. End quote. Filkin's book was nominated as one of the 100 most significant books of the year 2008. Dexter Filkin's The Forever War. <clears throat> For film this week, I review The Savages from the two year 2007. When the elderly Lenny has a so-called toileting incident, and his girlfriend Doris dies, his baby boomer children, from whom he has been long estranged, travel from New York to Sun City, Arizona, to care for their dad. John, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Wendy, played by Laura Linney, relocate their dad, Lenny, to Buffalo, New York, where they put him in a nursing home. There are curled family photos to sort through, bingo twice a week, reams of forms to sign, impalpable angst about what they've done and how everyone will cope. We're taking better care of him, says John, than he did of us. Lenny suffers from dementia and disinhibition. John is 42 and single. 
he has high cholesterol, and he just lost his Polish girlfriend. Wendy is 39 and single, has a boyfriend who's married, she pops Xanax for her nerves, and hopes to jumpstart her freelance writing career with a grant. Writer and director Tamara Jenkins was nominated <coughs> excuse me, for an Oscar for combining midlife humor and family heartache in a destiny that awaits us all. That role reversal when aging children must care for their aged parents. The Savages from the year 2007. And finally this week for Advent, we've posted one of my favorite poems for the season. The poem is by U.A. Fanthorpe, who was born in 1929. The title of the poem is B.C.A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. B.C. A.D. by U.A. Fanthorpe. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 14th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.